0: Hey, deserving listeners, I thought I would answer patron emails. Let's get to one. Upper tier anonymous patron wrote in and she said, I'm interested in your thoughts on cancel culture. I'm someone who has survived abuse and knows how important accountability is. But I've also seen how much harm caused by the shame and canceling that people resort to online. End of email. Yeah, I get this question quite a bit. And I've talked about this before, but I don't know if I've really answered it fully. So... Anytime we name something in our culture, we tend to reduce it. Cancel culture, that's our name for it. Uh, that name came out a couple years ago. We didn't have a name for it before, but of course we were doing cancel culture. We were canceling people. It was just in a different way, and we didn't call it that. So when we name something, we tend to reduce it, meaning we tend to simplify what it means. You know, When I say cancel culture – I think most people think of like something that's bad, just like a, a mob of people doing something that's bad. But let's like let's look more closely at what this means. It's like words like Obamacare or social justice warrior. These sorts of things get reduced and they end up taking negative connotations. But we have to we have to be smarter than that. So so let's let's look at, you know, what is cancel culture? What does that mean exactly? Well, it means many things. It basically means that when someone does a bad thing, they get canceled, meaning that they have a consequence. That's what I always say is like cancel culture when it's when it does when it's working well is consequences, good consequences, natural consequences or, uh, you know, uh, reasonable consequences to bad behavior. Harvey Weinstein was canceled. He did horrific things. And when they finally came to light after decades of him getting away with it, we as a society canceled him. Kevin Spacey, Matt Lauer, these fellas also. It was, came to light what they had done, and they were canceled. They lost their jobs. They were no longer – they're not going to get any more jobs. They were ridiculed online. They're probably ridiculed in their communities. And I think most would agree that that's a good thing. Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, Matt Lauer, they all deserve to be canceled. So cancel culture, meaning that the mob was right in that instance. But cancel culture also means that, uh, you know, it also is a label we put to when internet mobs assume they know the, the full story when they know very little about the story. They don't gather the facts. There's no intelligent discourse, and they end up canceling someone that shouldn't have been canceled. And we don't realize that until later. Um, We can come up with examples of that. But Aziz Ansari, for example, is is one example of that. And it's caused by a number of different factors that have always been present in society, whether the internet existed or not, which is a general lack of thinking skills, general lack of critical thinking skills. And this is not associated with intelligence. So, uh, Critical thinking skills is not associated with – well, I'm guessing it is kind of associated with intelligence. I don't know the research. But many people who are very smart lack critical thinking skills. There are still physicians who are very smart and got through medical school who don't believe that cigarettes are associated with cancer. There are climate scientists who are very smart and got their way through college and Passed all their exams and managed to get their doctorate in whatever, who don't uh, uh, believe when they look at all the facts that humans are contributing to climate change and global warming. So critical thinking skills are not inherently linked to intelligence. So we don't spend enough time teaching kids critical thinking skills for a number of reasons. One it's just not our tradition – And two, I believe and many other people believe that to teach kids critical thinking skills raises fears in teachers because the kids – if you teach a kid how to think for themselves, then the kid might say, hey, I don't want to do this assignment. I don't like this history book. I think this history book is biased towards white people. And teachers and administrators, they don't want that generally speaking. Now, of course, many teachers and administrators love that kind of thing. But generally speaking, historically speaking, that's not not true. So I think that schools veer away from critical thinking skills because really just think about the things that schools tend to teach us, right? Facts, memorization, process, this kind of thing. Anyway, so we have a population that just doesn't understand how to think critically, which is a very complicated set of skills. You have to be – you have to – essentially, it's similar to being a therapist. You have to understand your countertransference. You have to understand how your bias and your past and your traumas affect the way that you interpret facts, so to speak, that are coming in. Anyway, so people lack critical thinking skills and thus we have bad cancel culture mobs. Also just general ignorance of things. You know, People – and the Dunning-Kruger effect, people think they know a lot when they know very little. They think and they're very confident in their knowledge when they know very low. Also virtue signaling, meaning that you're trying to prove that you're a good person. And since a lot of people live online, they will try to signal online that they're a virtuous person. It's a known thing that humans have been doing since the beginning of time. And that can cause people to jump too fast onto a internet mob of canceling when they don't have all the facts. But I think the most important factor is schadenfreude, meaning that we all have this desire to put down other people to elevate ourselves. And so when anyone does something bad on the internet, it's very it feels very good to uh, strike back at that person, to cancel them because we're all walking around with low self-esteem and worthlessness. And so if we put someone else down, it just, you know, it just makes us feel better. So the more uh, low self esteem. You know, the the lower our general self esteem is out there, the more of this internet mob mentality or internet mob behavior we're going to see of Schadenfreude. You know, so so that's why. So it's it, so cancel culture is a lot of things. So what do, what do I think of cancel culture? I think that there's we need to have best practices. And again, how many people are talking about this? You know, if you go on the internet, you just Google cancel culture. You're going to hear a lot of people just saying, oh, cancel culture, it's all dumb, without looking at it critically, without saying, well, cancel culture is a good thing when it's used well, and it's a bad thing when it's used badly. So we don't want to just throw the baby out with the bathwater. We need to provide consequences to the Harvey Weinsteins of the world because they deserve it. (laughs) They deserve to be canceled these efforts deserve to be canceled oj simpson um bill cosby these people are monsters now oj simpson some people think he's innocent whatever but the point is is that if someone did something horrible they they deserve bad consequences and they they don't deserve to continue to reap the benefits of whatever they are doing and and we shouldn't participate in that you know so so how do we use cancel culture for good? Well, here is my very rough thought out things that I thought of in the last 2 minutes. The first thing is we got to slow down. As a as a mob, as a society, as a culture, when we come across someone that it seems like we should cancel, we should slow down, gather the facts, have a discourse, let's talk about it, let's slow down and then make a decision. Maybe that person needs to be canceled. Maybe they don't. Maybe it's something nuanced. Maybe there's a lesson to be learned here. Um, You know, With Kevin Spacey, Matt Lauer, Harvey Weinstein, I think we did have that thing. I think we did have kind of a slow process. There's a lot of facts. There's a lot of news reporting. There's a lot of reading. There's a lot of discussion. Should Kevin Spacey... Because a lot of people love Kevin Spacey. I mean, people love that guy. But, you know as you started to read the stories, you're just like, yeesh, that is awful. And you think, but I, you know, some people, I love House of Cards. I don't want to, you know, that character is just so awesome. And, you know, I just, I I can't, I don't want it, you know, so personally, it's like you're holding on to it. And a lot of people said, well, but if you, if you really look at what he did, um, I I don't know if I could stomach watching that show anymore. And I don't think it's fair to the victims that." Kevin Spacey just gets off scot-free and he gets to have his career. You know, I just don't know if that's... Now, I don't know. I can't remember the exact discourse around Kevin Spacey. I'm just using that as an example. but, But so cancel culture can be used for bad. It can be used for good. And the best practice that I recommend, slow down, gather the facts, have discourse. Now, the slowing down, how do you do that? Because... I've I know people who have been in fights around this. So say something comes out that someone was being sexist. You know, some some guy was being sexist against women. And let's say that uh, a woman friend of mine is all up in arms about uh, what happened and she's telling me, "Oh, did you hear about this guy?" Now let's say I say to this woman friend of mine, "Well, hold on. Let's slow down." Well, for me to say that as a man, uh, if that's all I said, could be interpreted as being insensitive and participating in the patriarchy, meaning I'm like telling a woman to slow down and stop being hysterical, quote unquote, about uh, sexism and that we shouldn't jump to conclusions or something like that. Even though I might believe that to be true, I need to be sensitive to this woman's emotions and the amount of sexism she's gone through. And the fact that I'm a man, and so it's all about context. So if I'm going to tell a woman to slow down about canceling a man over sexism, I have to be aware of the gender and the context that I'm participating in. So maybe I don't say slow down. <laughs> maybe I support my friend emotionally and say, oh, my God, that's just so horrible. And maybe later on, I, I, I take my own sweet time with making my own conclusions about it and gather the facts. So there's a lot of nuances to this. Another thing that people need to have nuance around is that to criticize a public figure doesn't auto- automatically mean you're canceling them. So I, for example, this is a couple of years ago when Kevin Hart was being criticized for a joke he said like nine or ten years ago. He he Kevin Hart, he, stand-up comedian, he had this joke where he said explicitly in his routine that if his if his son was gay he was gonna kill him. Now you have to watch the routine to make your own conclusion because comedy is comedy and there's a lot of outrageous things that people will say. But but it was um I didn't find it funny and I, I, f- I found the joke to be to be pretty awful, honestly. Like I, I, I don't the, there's there's humor that is defensible and there's humor that where you're humor humor's a very odd thing, which I won't go into. But anyway, I I didn't like the joke. However, I, I like Kevin Hart. <laughs> I think he's funny and I, I like his movies. I like his stand I don't I don't know if I like his stand up so much, but I like his movies and I and he seems like a nice enough guy. And his quote unquote apology wasn't that great. But you know so but the point is is that I'm at this party and the topic of Kevin Hart comes up. And I chime in, and, I, and I'm like, you know what? I didn't like that joke. I, I think that joke was awful. And this acquaintance of mine just started yelling at me. How, you know, what are you talking, th- you, know, you know, you're too sensitive and all this stuff. And I think this acquaintance was yelling at me because because he thought I meant he should be canceled, that he should just be wiped off of the entertainment landscape. That wasn't what I was saying. <laughs> What I was saying is I didn't like that joke, and I found it to be offensive. The other thing I think he thought I was saying was that I think he's a terror you know I think Kev- I think Kevin Hart is a terrible homophobe, and I don't know that to be true I don't know Kevin Hart at all. I just know that that joke is homophobic and heterosexist and you know awful and just just not funny and I think it perpetuates a pretty nasty notion <laughs> um, and how is that funny you know now to say that to a fan of Kevin Hart. You know, we'll threaten them. And And it's like, just because I, as a human being, interpret that joke to be a bad thing, and I find it to be homophobic, and I find it to be heterosexist, and I find it to be of poor taste, doesn't, shouldn't threaten you. The fact that I, and that's, this is a big part of this cancel culture. Actually, it's a sort of ancillary idea of just like, People should be allowed to have their opinions. Now, if the opinions are bad, <laughs> then let's try to influence those people. You know, if my ba- if I, I've had I've had billions of bad opinions in my life, and I still do, and I have to remain open to changing those opinions. You know, upon having a discourse. But the point is, is that just because someone comes out and says, "I think that joke was fine," or "I think that joke deserves," Kevin Hart deserves to be canceled. Um, actually, Billy Eichner came out, and he's a gay man. He was on Parks and Rec. He also did Billy on the Street, which is one of the funniest things. What, late at night, that's what I do, is I watch YouTube, Billy, uh, YouTube videos of Billy on the Street. And um, he, he he came out kind of in defense of Kevin Hart. But anyway, the point is, is that... Uh, If we're going to have an intelligent discourse, meaning that we talk about it, we mull it over unemotionally without hurting each other's feelings, without jumping to conclusions, if we're going to have that discourse, which we need to do uh, in a lot of these, if we're going to change, we we need to have that discourse, then we can't jump down people's throats when they state their opinion. We can't cancel them because they just have a different point of view than, than you do. You know, let, let's, let's enter into a conversation. There's a lot of famous examples of this, you know, like um, I can't remember the exact story, but many of you probably know it. There's a, there's a black American guy who uh, befriended a KKK uh, guy or people and over time just changed the – There's there's several stories, but there's one famous one where these white supremacists who were white supremacists their entire life and just quintessential, like, neo-Nazi, you know, the hardcore white supremacists. And over time, because they got to know this black guy, and the black guy didn't yell at them, wasn't aggressive, just said, hey, I hear you, but let's just hang out. Let's just talk. (laughs) And then over time, the white supremacists were like, huh, I think I'm going to disavow my white supremacy, (laughs) after just hanging out with you a little bit how often was that white supremacist approached in that way in a way of just like you know i'm not going to jump down your throat because you're a white supremacist let's let's just hang out let's just talk let's i don't like your point of view but you know what let's just hang out let's just be together i think we could really make the world a better place if we did that sort of thing anyway let's go on to another email All right, this next email is from upper-tier patron Sleepless in Pennsylvania. She writes, Are night terrors caused by sexual abuse? Are night terrors caused by sexual abuse? While meeting with a sleep doctor about my sleep apnea, I shared my history of night terrors as a child and 40 years of sleepwalking. She said that I must have been sexually abused, and I said, no, I hadn't. Years later, I remembered going to a friend's house when I was around 10 years old and her older brother doing some sexually inappropriate things to me. But I have gaps in my memory, so I don't know if more happened. My night terrors and sleepwalking started around then. I hate to think that a visit to a friend's house caused decades of misery and of email. So basically what Sleepless in Pennsylvania is saying is that she has had 40 years of sleepwalking and night terrors. And she has sleep apnea as well. And she went to a sleep doctor and the sleep doctor said, oh, well, you must have been sexually abused. And she's saying, um, you know, the patient is saying, I, I don't remember being sexually abused. But then years later, she's like, wait, I th- maybe I was sexually abused because this one sexually inappropriate thing did happen when I was around 10 years old. And that that is when my night terrors started. Well, So here's what the research – there's no way to know if your sexual abuse is what caused that thing. Sexual abuse is associated with a slight increase in risk of all sleep disorders, including night terrors. But to assume that sexual abuse is the cause of your night terrors and your sleep apnea and your sleepwalking is ridiculous. There's no way for anyone to know that. It's much more likely that the – well, I'll just say there's no way to know. And many people who have night terrors and other, you know, parasomnias have not been sexually abused. So it, it's it's a silly association that your physician was making to assume like, oh, you have you have night terrors, you obviously were sexually abused. And I've seen this before. I've seen people just assume that there are certain things like Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew Pinsky on Loveline would often associate a woman with a high-pitched voice as automatically an indication that she had been sexually abused growing up. And it's, it's just a ridiculous thing. There, there's nothing like that in the world where you can just look to a, a behavior and go, oh, they must have been sexually abused. Now, I will say that a lot of people have been sexually abused. And so there's a lot of false positives there, meaning that for Adam and Drew on Loveline, they often were right when they assumed that someone was sexually abused. But that's because. A lot of people calling in were calling in about sexual issues, and a lot of people with sexual issues have had sexual traumas in the past, and a lot of people have had sexual traumas in the past. So anyway, so there's that. Having said that, you might have been traumatized by that event when you were 10 years old. I don't know that. Only you could answer that question with some exploration. Having said that, even if you were traumatized, your sleep terrors might not have anything to do with that. So I I thought I might give this – Um, use this time as an opportunity to go into a little bit of sleep disorders and night terrors in general. I actually used to think until doing this little bit of a deep dive on night terrors, that night terrors were sleep paralysis. I, I don't know who taught me that, but I definitely remember being taught that, that when, you know, it's that experience you'll hear about people will wake up and they won't be able to move because when we fall asleep there's a part of the brain that actually turns off our ability to move because if we move then we would act out our dreams and we would flail and so the so we become paralyzed while we're asleep we're essentially paralyzed and sometimes there's a experience where people will wake up they'll be fully awake but their uh, paralysis is still present, and so they're awake and they can't move and it's really terrifying. It also can be associated with a slight hallucination where you think some it, – because it can feel like uh, something is on your chest. like And and there's been hi- historical ex- uh, descriptions of this as well as waking up uh, paralyzed with fear and a demon is on your chest. So you'll hear lots of different things. and a lot of times when i hear stories about people believing that they were abducted by aliens and that they were being probed that it it's there's a good chance that at least some of those cases are cases of sleep paralysis where they wake up they're paralyzed they have a slight hallucination they fall back asleep they wake up in the morning they remember what happened and they think oh i must have been abducted by aliens because they they had an experience and they don't they don't know how to explain it and so they just graft it onto um, being abducted by aliens so th- that is called sleep paralysis and that actually isn't in the DSM so it would be subsumed under other specified sleep-wake disorder um, which I'll get into in a, in a bit but so I was told at some point night terrors were that uh, and I've been correcting people and I don't know I've been correcting people incorrectly and I don't know if I've done that on the podcast so if I've done that I apologize <laughs> for not knowing what I was talking about Um. So night terrors, uh, what it is? It's, it's a sleep disorder in which you wake up with the with feelings of panic and dread. It, you know, it 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 is what it sounds like. You wake up in the middle of the night in utter terror. Usually within the first few hours of sleep, it's and it's usually not in REM sleep. It's usually in non-REM sleep. And when the person wakes up, they're usually inconsolable. They're they It's like having a, a panic attack they might bolt upright in fear, they might scream, they might be confused, they might hallucinate, they might run out of the room, that it can last for a minute, it can last for 10 minutes, or maybe longer at times, but it's usually around a couple minutes. There's actually a famous story by Mike Ber- Mike Berbiglia. he's a comedian, if you've heard him give his stand-up uh, routine, he talks about how he has this condition, and he talks about one time he was doing a uh, – he was you know is a traveling stand-up comic and he was in Walla Walla, Washington at La Quinta Inn. It's a funny routine. You can Google it. But he talks about how he woke up in the middle of the night. Uh, he was – well, he said that he was having a dream. I think that like a, a missile um, like was being shot at him and so he was running away from the missile and then he woke up as he was jumping through the window – of his hotel room on the second floor and falling to the ground below. And he was running through this parking lot or this field or something in only his underwear and he was bleeding all over because of the broken glass. And then all of a sudden he he kind of comes to and he's like, wait a second. I, I just had a night terror. I just – I woke up. I was kind of hallucinating and I sleepwalked and I ran out through the window. And so we might categorize that as night terrors. Now here's the thing. There's a lot of overlap and ambiguity about how to categorize these things. Would we call this a night terror? Would we call it sleepwalking? Uh, There's a lot of different – it's hard to categorize these kinds of things because there are a lot of different experiences, which I'll get into in a second as well. But anyway, so a typical night terror – and and it's more prevalent for kids. If you have kids, uh, you might have had uh, kids who have had night terrors before. But it can happen for adults too. Anyway, the typical uh, thing that happens is the person will just suddenly wake up in utter terror. They won't know why they're feeling panicked. So th- they'll they'll just be in utter terror and, and they're inconsolable. So if, if you go to the child and you're like, everything's okay, the kid will just be freaking out for a little bit of time before they – and they might be confused, this kind of thing. Um, now, factors that have been found to be associated with an increased risk of experiencing night terrors are being young of age, being a child, being sleep-deprived. And this is a big one. Any of the odd sleep disorders or experiences are almost always associated with sleep deprivation. And you can, you can get sleep-deprived for from a number of different things, drinking, uh, alcohol, caffeine, uh, going to sleep at various different times, um, having stress, sleep apnea, this kind of thing. So anytime you're sleep-deprived, your chance of having any sleep disorder goes way up. Medications can be a risk factor, stress, fever, seizures, um, sleep apnea. It can also – genetics can also play a role. So night terrors are different from nightmares. Nightmares are bad dreams and happen during REM sleep, whereas sleep terrors don't happen during REM sleep, and they're not dreams. It's just – we don't know why people do this. They just wake up in an utter panic attack. With nightmares, there's almost never vocalizations or agitation. You know, a typical, a very typical nightmare will just be this horrible, horrible dream. You're being chased by a monster or something, and then uh, you wake up and you and you go and you, you know you're not flailing, you're not screaming. You wake up and you just think, oh. What a terrible dream. That was just an awful, awful, long, vivid, horrible dream. And you might have really hated that dream, and it might have disrupted your, disrupted your sleep a little bit, but it was entirely contained within the sleep process. And when you woke up, you weren't really confused. You weren't flailing. You weren't in a panic. You actually might have been fairly relieved when you woke up. So, so nightmares can be horrible, but they're different from night terrors. Night terrors are waking up, screaming in utter panic. And I'll, I'll see people actually associate night. They'll, they'll say, you know, the kid's having a lot of night terrors. And I'll inquire more. And I'll, what do you mean by night terrors? So we'll, well, the kid's having like these really horrible nightmares. And I'll say, well, you know, anything else around that? And they'll be like, no. And I'll be like, well, that's just, that's just a nightmare. Um, there, there's some kind of cultural thing of like, if it's a really horrible nightmare, then it's a night terror. No, night terrors are completely different. Think of night terrors as a panic attack that happens, a confused, weird panic attack during sleep. Uh, research uh, seems to ind- indicate that a good number of children will experience at least one or more episodes, like four percent of kids, maybe like one percent of adults-ish. But the but the disorder of having sleep terrors means that you're having them frequently and they're causing a lot of problems, and that's a lot lower percentage. Um, so so that's so that's sleep night terrors. That's night terrors. Those are panic attacks in the middle of the night. Now let's go over all of the Sleep disorders that are, that are in the DSM, so we have insom, insomnia, which we all know what that is. We have hypersomnia some somnolence som, somnolence hypersomnolence. hypersomnolence, hypersomnolence I'm going to say that five times hypersomnolence. hypersomnolence, hypersomnolence, is excessive sleepiness. You have narcolepsy, which most of us know what that is, sleep apnea, which most of us know what that is circadian rhythm sleep wake disorders and there's various different kinds of that um like people who work night shifts will often suffer from circadian rhythm sleep wake disorders there's also a category in the DSM called non-REM sleep arousal disorders and this is where night sleep sleep terrors are in and and they they call them sleep terrors in the DSM not night terrors so there are two types of non-REM sleep arousal disorders you have sleep terrors not night terrors it's just another word for night terrors And sleepwalking. And this sleepwalking also includes um, sleep-related sexual behavior as well. We also have nightmare disorder. This is when you have recurring nightmares. And we also have REM sleep behavior disorder. This is where people will flail. So so non-REM sleep arousal disorders like sleepwalking and sleep terrors or night terrors happen during non-REM sleep. And then we have REM sleep disorders, which are associated with dreams. And so uh, REM sleep – we call this REM sleep behavior disorder. In other words, you have actual behavior that are associated with your dreams. That's usually what it is. So I actually have this. And um, my dad does as well, so I inherited it from him. And I think I have it more when I have uh, sleep disturbances. So – Basically, I'm having a dream where someone is coming at me, and then I'm going to punch him in the face, and then I actually will punch in in bed, and I'll and if someone happens to be next to me, I'm going to punch them, <laughs> which is just horrible, or kick or flail or something. I've punched walls one time. Um, I, I'll never forget this. This would have been I don't know five years ago. I was in the mall in a dream, and these older people were coming at me, and they were they were taking up the entire Breadth of the corridor, and I was trying to get, I was trying to sort of, you know, go between them, and this one guy just stopped right in front of me, and he was about to punch me, and I put out my hand to block his punch, and then I was going to punch him. Well, due to my REM sleep behavior disorder, I actually, uh, and this is a a disorder where that paral that paralysis isn't effective, essentially. So normally I would have been paralyzed, so I wouldn't be able to act out this thing. But because the, my paralysis wasn't effective, I actually acted it out. And so I was on my stomach, and I, I did a one-handed push-up and, because I was pushing the old man away from me. And then I punched him as hard as I could in my dream. But instead of punching him because he's not real, I punched my own hand. So I, I did a one-handed push-up and punched my own hand with my other arm, my other hand, as hard as I could. Imagine, just, just put your hand up against the wall and just imagine just hauling off and punching your hand as hard as you could. You could do some serious damage to your bones in your hand, and I did. My hand hurt. There was a pain in my hand for probably like two and a half years from, from punching my own hand while I was sleeping. So, uh, so that's an REM sleep behavior disorder. Also talking in your sleep, now, many people will talk in their sleep. Many people will flail. But it's only a problem if it causes significant problems. That's when—that's the only time when we would say that you have the disorder, right? So all these – if you have occasional insomnia, then you wouldn't qualify for the disorder. But if you have chronic insomnia that really interferes with your life, then you would qualify for the DSM label. So to qualify for the DSM label of REM sleep behavior disorder, you would have to frequently have this happen to you. And you would have to have some kind of negative effect like, you know, hurting your partner frequently, this kind of thing while you're in bed or or having a lot of anxiety about falling asleep, this kind of thing. Then we have rest, restless leg syndrome and so on. There's, there's a lot of other kind of uh, lesser known disorders. And then we have this grab bag label in the DSM called Other Specified Sleep-Wake Disorder. And in this, this is where sleep paralysis would be because this is – because we don't have – a a disorder label for sleep paralysis. So this would be an other specified sleep-wake disorder, but we might just kind of call it sleep paralysis. Another uh, part of other specified sleep-wake disorder is what also happened to me when I was a kid. I uh, very rarely, but well, I don't know how rare it was. It happened enough that my family knew about it. So I'll tell you two two incidents, two incidents. Um, that were indicative of what would happen to me when I was a kid. Uh, one time um, I I remember I, I woke up and I would wake up in this state where I was not really me, but I but I remember everything that happened. And I would wake up and everything would be kind of scary to me. Everything in the world was just really threatening, even though I couldn't see anything that was threatening me. And so I'd always go to my parents' room and ask my mom to – I don't know, help me or something. And so I remember this one time I was probably 10 years old or something. And I go into my mom's room, my mom and dad's room. And I walk to my mom's side of the bed and, and I said something to her, just like, um, you know, I, I don't know what to do or they're out to get me or some kind of weird hallucination statement. And then my mom, because she was talking in her sleep, she said, go ask Santa Claus. (laughs) And then I, and then that was just so absurd to me that it woke me up out of that condition, and I was like, "Oh, wait, I'm sleep I'm sleep talking, I'm sleep-walking, hallucinating, you know, anxiety, and I was like, "And now I'm awake, and everything's fine." and I went back to bed." So it was this weird in-between state in which I was awake walking around and interacting with people, but I was in this totally different state of mind, affected by a dream or, I don't know what it was but I would be uh, quite different. Another, uh, but in other times, I would do that. I'd go up to my mom's bed, and I would say something, and she would say, just go back to bed. Everything's going to be fine. And somehow that would just reassure me enough, and then I'd go back to bed. But there's this other time that I'll tell you that was more distinct, and, and I would have a few of I remember having at least a few moments like this as a kid. I woke up, uh, again, I was probably like 10 years old, and I look at my my bed you know my i'm looking on my bed and there's all these little people these tiny little people and they're buying they're going up to this tiny like hot dog stand and they're buying hot dogs and so i'm like whoa that's weird there's like this tiny little world on my on my bed and and i'm not dreaming i'm awake meaning i'm not asleep i'm actually in the physical world i'm sitting up in bed looking on my on my bed and seeing these little guys and then i looked uh, to my left and I remember the, that there was water filled in the my room was filled with water up to the edge of my bed and there was a man walking through the water with his pants pulled up he was trying to keep his pants dry and he was just walking through my bedroom in what was kind of like swampy water so then th- there's always this compulsion when I would have this where I just would just be I just get out of bed so I got out of bed I'm sloshing through the water and I go into – I'm about to go into the hallway and I hallucinate that there's nuclear missiles because this is you know, the 70s, 80s when there was the Cold War. And so there's all this nuclear missile scare. And so I had this fear, this hallucination that there were nuclear missiles that were pointed into the hallway. And if I stepped out of the hallway, I was going to get blown up. <laughs> Somehow I – made it through that uh, obstacle and I, I was going to go to the bathroom but the bathroom light wasn't on and it was pitch black inside the bathroom and I hallucinated that the big, the dark blackness was a monster with a mouth the size of the door uh, opening so that when I walked in the monster was going to chomp down and eat me so I was like oh, I can't go to the bathroom and so on so you know this this was, would happen then eventually I'd go up to my mom and she would kind of say everything's going to be okay and then I would kind of Come to, and then I would go back to bed, and I'd fall asleep, and everything was would be fine. So that's pretty weird, right? Well, that doesn't fit into the into any of the other um, things, you know, because with sleep terrors, you wake up, you're confused, and you don't really know why you're panicking, and then um, and you're not you're not hallucinating anything, and it's not sleepwalking because uh, sleepwalking, you, you don't you're not you're still asleep. You're walking, but you're still asleep. I wasn't really asleep in these moments. I was. I was awake I could see the world I could interact with things and I re- and I remember everything that happened during those events even to this day so so I would so that experience would be called an other specified sleep wake disorder now that doesn't mean that other people don't have what I have it just means that it's there is not enough people like me who have had those experiences to justify a whole label in the DSM because if we if we put a label in the DSM for every single disorder like experience or or mental experience that's different from the norm, then we would have a book that would be, you know, tens of tens of millions of pages long, essentially. So anyway, so those are various different sleep disorders. And again, sleepless in Pennsylvania, I'm really sorry that you have sleep apnea. That's awful. I'm sorry that you were uh, treated badly when you were 10 sexually inappropriately. Um, and i 'm sorry that you have a physician who seems to think that anyone who has sleep terrors or or um, night terrors are automatically uh, and were sexually abused it 's just an absurd thing <laughs> anyway uh, let 's take a break all right we 're back from the break. This next email is from upper tier patron Angela. She writes. Well, she wrote an email, a longer email, but basically what she wanted me to talk about was about two people who are in a relationship who both have avoidant um, attachment style. And she's saying that she doesn't hear a lot of uh, literature about it, or online literature, because the internet often talks about avoidant preoccupied being together, the sort of pursuer distancer. And so she wanted me to talk about to avoidant people being in a relationship. Well, the first thing I'll say is it's hard to generalize because we're probably talking about a billion people on the planet. And to generalize about a billion people across cultures is going to be hard. But here are some of the things that I've seen. So remember that avoidant people, they're both they're, – they're insecure. They're just as insecure in general as any uh, preoccupied person, meaning that they don't believe that other people will be there for them when they need them and most of their or many much of their attachment needs are not being met on a daily basis they early in life just learned that it was better to not open up and not be vulnerable so they don't trust people enough to open up but deep down they have a ton of neediness that has that is not going expressed the other problem is that due to this early adaptive style maladaptive style they turn themselves off from their emotions. So they might not even really know when they need things. So they might deep down really need attachment, but they're not very attuned to themselves because they turned themselves off from that a long time ago. And that can be a problem in a relationship because a big part of a a well-working relationship is you yourself knowing when you need attachment and when you need love and when you need reassurance and when you need someone to take care of you and noticing that and then actually reaching out to the other person. So so that's uh, an impediment on relationships that, that can cause problems in both people. So two avoidant people, what I've seen is that – and again, it's hard to generalize, but one of the sort of quintessential presentations is that they're both very distant from each other. So this can be a strength. They might not invade each other's space very much. They, they understand each other. They give each other space. They don't overly depend on each other they you know when when one person says you know what i'm going to go to a movie by myself the other person isn't threatened because they're like yeah makes sense i would do that too or when one person goes to a party by themselves or when one person um, you know, has an experience at work, and they don't really talk about it with their spouse about it, they both get each other, because they're both like that. And they both understand their preferences, their preferences are compatible in that way. And they're less likely to be hurt by that and, and to uh, misinterpret that as a, a, a passive aggression or something. So two avoidant people can fit well together. But um, there's also other kinds of situations where, because uh, remember that Avoidant people are not necessarily independent. They look independent, but they're not actually independent in a healthy way. They are forced the the way to think about avoidant people is they're forcing themselves to de- to deny their dependency. Meanwhile, their dependency rages on. So, they're not actually independent. They're just uh, so they've just they're just so disheartened by other people that they don't trust other people, and so they just act on their own out of uh, desperation in a lot of ways. So there's a huge risk that the two people, because they have attachment needs, you know, the two avoidant people, uh, be, because again, they're not independent in the sense that they don't need other people, because they very much do need other people. Independence, true healthy independence. True, truly healthy, um, independent people recognize their dependence, if that makes sense. True differentiated people understand their need for fusion at times. Anyway, so with two with two avoidant people, they'll look independent, but there's a huge risk that they will hurt each other by their distancing behavior. You know, they'll just slowly on cruise control drift apart and they won't necessarily be happy about that. Because, again, deep down, they're they're extremely needy and they have a deep need for closeness. And, uh, and they'll interpret the other person's aloofness as purposeful or hurtful or something. And so this can result in a lot of resentment. That can result in dissolution of the relationship. And or it could just result in not bonding very well. You know, two people who don't express each other's neediness and vulnerability can result in a lack of bond, a big part of the reason why people bond is that you need the other person and you express that, that you say, I need you deeply and I want you to need me because you can trust me because I want you to depend on me. I want to help you and I want you to help me. That kind of mutual dependency is a huge for bonding, and for people who are avoidant, they they have a really hard time with that. Now, that isn't to say that two avoidant people can't have a wonderful relationship. They can, but the downside is that they're not going to get a lot of their needs met emotionally and vulnerability-wise. Two secure people are much more likely to meet each other's needs. Now, the other thing I'll say is that you can be avoidant and not act avoidant. You could have avoidant tendencies when you're stressed and when you're challenged, when you're triggered. But you can ha- so you can have two avoidant people who tend to be avoidant in their lives, but in their current relationship, they don't really act avoidant. they are vulnerable they're vulnerable enough they depend on each other enough they notice their needs for other people enough, and it's enough to get by so uh so that's another thing that we just want to look at is it's not like if you tend to have avoidant attachment style that It defines everything about who you are and what you will be. So that's the way I'll answer that question. Let's go on to another email. All right. This next email is from upper-tier patron Giselle from Los Angeles. She writes, I was diagnosed with complex PTSD and find that throughout my life I've struggled with executive functioning. I've struggled to keep my jobs and deal with personal responsibilities because of this issue, and I'm trying to make sense of it all. End of email. So, upper-tier patron, Giselle from Los Angeles. Um, So, there are a lot of different things I could say. But in brief, when you suffer from complex PTSD, you were traumatized growing up, usually by a family member. And when you are walking around with uh, trauma syndrome, you are in a state of distress frequently. And when you're triggered, you're particularly in distress. And when you're particularly in distress or even mildly in distress – you're going to have trouble with what we would call executive functioning. Now, I'm not sure, Giselle, what you mean by executive functioning. You describe it a little bit. It's like you've struggled to keep jobs and deal with personal responsibilities. Usually what we're talking about when we're talking about executive functioning issues, we're talking about ADHD and other kinds of issues where it's just hard to hold a number of sequences together. It's hard to get motivated. It's hard to stay on track. It's hard to remember what you're supposed to do, and then you you drop the ball a lot. People will see you as flaky or irresponsible, this kind of thing. And there's a lot that I'll get into. But before I get into that part is that when you're in distress, then obviously you're going to be distracted from higher executive functioning. Think about it like – if you stub your toe and you're in utter pain, and someone walks up to you and says, "Hey, can you do my taxes?" You're going to be like, um, "I can't do your taxes until I, till the pain in my foot goes away." Well, when you are in distress, you're in you're in psychic pain, psychological pain, and it's going to be hard to focus on anything. So, so that could that could be one way of looking at it. And what I'll also say at the beginning is that it's impossible to know, right? If you have a executive function problem that's related to your complex PTSD, or you have a separate executive functioning problem, um, i.e. ADHD. A lot of people, a lot of adults suffer from ADHD. And how do we categorize the two? How do we know? Let's say you have someone with complex PTSD. Well, the one way you would test it is if your trauma symptoms, as they increase. Does your executive function problem also increase? That would be a good indication that your executive problem is actually a a result of your complex PTSD. But it's all a matter of how you categorize it. Um, Could you be diagnosed with both? Sure. Could you be treated for both? Sure. Could you go through complex PTSD treatment and executive functioning therapy, medication, and psychotherapy? Sure. You could do both. And you're trying to look, you're trying to make sense of it all. You said, you know, in the longer portion of your email, you're saying you're reading all this stuff and trying to figure it out. Well, it, it might not be that there is a quote unquote answer to it. So usually what I tell people to do is start treating it, you know, uh, look into psychotherapy that specializes in ADHD and executive functioning. Uh, let's see if that works also obviously get treatment for your complex PTSD and, you know, just sort of muddle your way through it because there's no way for us to know what the issue is exactly and where to go with it. You know, a a lot of things in my field, it has to do with, well, let's start doing the therapy. And if the therapy works, then we kind of know what the issue was. And there's a lot of prescribers that will actually do that, particularly with ADHD. Someone will come in, with adhd symptoms and the prescriber will say well i don't know it's sort of borderline it's hard to tell if it's actual adhd or not you know let's try psychostimulants and see if it really helps and that you give the person psychostimulants and for those people who have what we might call sort of quintessential adhd the psychostimulant will really help them They'll just be like, oh my god this is life-changing i can finally think straight i can finally you know to go to work I get, I, as a parent I'm much more sharp I mean my brain is just working really well on this psychostimulant whereas people without ADHD will say things like oh, I don't know if it's really working you know is that evidence that ADHD isn't there no but it, it does it, it that's just kind of the world we live in the other thing I'll say is that executive functioning can be a, a separate issue besides you know, complex PTSD obviously um but it also can be an outgrowth from uh, trauma. You know, you when you're traumatized, your your brain is changed, and so you could have a neurological issue that could result in executive functioning deficits due to just the developmental effects of trauma in life that gave you complex PTSD and also gave you an executive functioning issue. The last thing I'll say is that. There are a lot of things that people will um, People will label executive function problem or ADHD when, in reality, it's some other disorder. If you're depressed, you're going to have trouble staying on task and get, and getting things done. If you're frequently anxious, you're going to have trouble staying on task and getting things done. If you have PTSD, it's going to be hard to stay on task and and, and get things done. If your life is in utter chaos, you're going to have a, you're going to be distracted. You know, a lot of the sort of quintessential example of this is you have a fifth grade boy who is having trouble in school and having trouble concentrating, and they give him meds. And then me or one of my supervisees as a family therapist comes in and we start looking at the situation and we find that the kid has experienced a lifetime of trauma, maybe foster care, the family environment currently is very chaotic and there's a lot of conflict and the kid isn't getting any of their attachment needs met. Maybe there's even food scarcity and, you know, abuse and, you know, whatever, they're bullying. There's all these things that are happening in the in the uh, fifth grader's life, and yet all we see is the fact that the kid isn't doing their schoolwork. And it's not hard to imagine that if a kid's life is in utter chaos, they are going to be distractible, they're going to have a hard time motivating they're going to be a hard time concentrating. They might not have the self-esteem to actually fulfill these sorts of requests. And they're going to have our hard time concentrating at, at school, and they're going to have a hard time doing their schoolwork, and they're going to be a little squirrely in their seat in class. And yet all we see is ADHD, and we just give them a med. So whenever I hear people who have executive functioning issues, I'm always curious about what the bigger picture are. Let's look at the holistic uh, situation. Because we live in a society where, for you, Giselle, it's like I, I'm struggling to keep my jobs, and I, I I have trouble with personal responsibilities. We tend to really focus on that. It's like, well, let's focus on you know making sure you can keep your job and making sure that you can get your responsibilities done, instead of saying, let's zoom out here a little bit, Giselle. If you if you are suffering from complex PTSD. This is a global issue for your personality and your life and your history. So let's, let's take five, ten years to really get yourself well in that area. Let's get some trauma therapy. Let's get some therapy from a person who really understands complex PTSD because there's got to be a lot of transference that you're going to feel with your therapist. And your uh, therapist is going to have a lot of countertransference. And, and you're going to want to use that to have a corrective attachment experience. It's going to take some time you know what, your job situation is not going to go well, your personal responsibilities aren't going to go well. Let's let's say that's a distant second or a, you know third, fourth, fifth priority on the list when it comes to your well-being in relation to complex PTSD and your self-esteem and feeling like people love you, feeling like you're worth it, feeling what being able to walk through the world and be in relationships with other people without being triggered all the time. You know, let's, let's focus on that instead of making sure that you keep your job. Now, I understand that's a reality that people have to f- face. You know, it's just you want to be able to keep your job. There's you have to pay your bills and this sort of thing. I get that. But and I don't know, Giselle, if, if you're having this priority um, issue that I'm pointing out. But I really, really hope, Giselle, that, that you are getting the therapy that you deserve for your complex PTSD. And if your executive function um, it might follow suit. Now, I don't know what kind of executive function issue you're talking about because you could be talking about a really severe executive function issue, in which case, you know, I would look at you'd uh, it, get evaluated for medication. Uh, there's a lot of people who suffer from adult ADHD, like I said earlier, and they take a med and it just changes their life. Now, there are side effects to the med like trouble sleeping at night, um, this kind of thing. And so, you know, you can work that out with your prescriber and there's different types of meds, different um, release, uh, you know, types of release pills. Like it's, it'll blast you with psychostimulants for the first four hours or, you know, maybe it's delayed release over eight hours. So anyway, the point is, is that there are um, a lot of options that I would look into. And I hope that you get the care that you, that you want and that you deserve. All right. Let's get to another email. All right, this next email is from upper-tier patron Kathleen, good old Kathleen. She writes, As your popularity continues to rise, I'm curious if any of your long-term clients have expressed any concerns about your success. I'm asking because I thought about my own therapist, and if he was becoming famous, I started to get really anxious that I would not want to share him with so many people. End of email. Uh, so I don't know how many of my clients know that my popularity is rising. And the other thing I would just want to point out to everyone is that my popularity has been slowly rising over 12 years. So I'm like the slowest build in uh, in popularity of, of anyone you've ever heard of before. <laughs> and I'm 49 years old. You know what I mean? So – in uh, for the first couple years of the podcast, you know, there was some popularity, not much. In the next two years, a little bit more and a little bit more. You know, there's been little bumps here and there. And one could argue that there's been a bump most recently. But but uh, so anyway, I, it's not like there was me six months ago. That's so different from me today. It's It's really the same. Everything's the same. My life feels the same. My work with my clients feels the same. So I don't know how aware my clients are. I know some of my clients do listen to the podcast, but I don't know if they're aware or care or or have listened that closely to to have known what's happening on YouTube anyway so there's that the The thing that I'll say is that with my clients uh nothing has changed regarding our work together as far as I can tell. Everything that uh, we talk about you know the thing that I really want people to understand about what it's like to be in long-term therapy is like the relationship transcends so many things. And so for example, let's say one of my clients does know like, Oh, you know, he, he he's his YouTube channel is getting a little popular. This, our relationship, I would imagine is so deep and, and so has been around for so long. Cause all my clients right now are long-term clients that, that issue is just – it's kind of minor. It's sort of like, does my wife look at me differently because of this situation? No, because we've been together a long time, and she knows the full me. And the fact that I have a few more YouTube subscribers doesn't change the my relationship with my wife. You know what I mean? So in the same way that with my clients, the fact that I have a few more YouTube subscribers doesn't change the rich uh, the richness that is our therapeutic relationship at least that 's what it seems like to me um, now is it an issue for some of the clients that they're worried about uh, you know sharing me i 'm not getting that vibe I am getting that vibe with some of my supervisees honestly <laughs> and some of my students I am getting that vibe with some of them they um, you know that that can be a very dependent sort of relationship in a good way you know supervisees will really depend on me to help them with their careers, post-grad, but also just be there as a mentor, someone who cares. And I can't remember specifically which supervisee, but I seem to remember having some some conversations with some supervisees who do listen to the podcast and do know. Um, I, I seem to remember at least one or two conversations with supervisees where they're just like, so now that you're popular, are you going to abandon me? And I would reassure them and say, no, <laughs> I, I, I'm not. And I just want everyone to know, whether you're a client, supervisee, or otherwise listening, that the the reality of my life hasn't changed. I mean, I'm quarantined right now, so my life is different in that way. But we could all imagine what that's like because we're all in the same boat together. But but my life, my day-to-day life hasn't changed. You know, I'm still uh, answering emails. I'm still answering emails on the podcast. I'm still talking to Umberto. I'm still talking to Bob. I'm still hanging out with my wife and my animals. We just got a new cat today. Look on Instagram for pictures of that. Um, uh, My backyard is still my backyard. Seattle is still gloomy weather. (laughs) Um, You know everything's the same. You know, and I I imagine that it's similar for you know very famous people as well, right? Like your Conan O'Briens and your you know other people like that. That. you know, their they're, most of their life is the same. They still go to bed. They still wake up. They still put their pants on. They still eat their eggs and their toast, and they still watch TV shows that they like. like so I just want to be clear that my life hasn't changed, and it probably won't change. So anyway, let's go on to another email. Actually, I should probably just say it right there. Uh, my dog is freaking out, and I probably should go uh, help him out. So That does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. And tune in next time when we continue talking about whatever we're going to be talking about. Take care of other people. Take care of yourself because we all deserve it. We really, really do.